So in a few weeks, we are going to launch a series in the book of Proverbs called Wisdom or Folly. Man, I'm so pumped for that because I am convinced as I study Proverbs that a good part of the difficulty we experience in life is because we don't listen to God. And some of the difficulty that we are inevitably going to experience would be mitigated or the impact would be lessened if we listen to God. So I'm really excited about that series. That's in a few weeks. But before we get there, we've got a little bit of work to finish in 1 Corinthians 16. I heard someone say that the beginning of epistles and the end of epistles are a bit like the ends of loaves of bread. Maybe nutritious, but not very delicious. You read the end of 1 Corinthians 16, and frankly, at first blush, it reads like a laundry list. Like, so Bob says ho, says hello, you know, Stephanie says she's going to come visit, don't forget this, do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just reads like a laundry list. In fact, many people who've preached through 1 Corinthians, what was conspicuously absent was any sermons from 1 Corinthians 16. They just move on. After all, it's just the end of a loaf of bread. But I was listening to one gentleman preach on 1 Corinthians 16, and he mentioned in his introduction Isaiah 29 and verse 16, which says, um, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing that was made say of him who made it, he didn't make me? And he mentioned uh, talking to somebody, and you've been in a conversation like this, you're talking to somebody maybe about the things of God, you're trying to, and they will say something to the effect of, well, I believe in God, and this is not really down with the Bible. I mean, come on, it's so antiquated with its teachings on sexuality and so f- full of you know, inconsistencies and errors, etc. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? And then he said, he responds, well, tell me, what is God like? And what attribute will people inevitably emphasize? It's funny, they never say, well, you know, I think God is really holy. (laughs) Or I think God is really righteous. They'll inevitably say God is very loving as they define love and not really like those judgy Christians. Then he says he follows up with this question. Well, how do you know this is true? Well, the response often is, I just feel it in my heart. That's who my God is. You ever heard somebody say something like that? And he quotes Isaiah 29 and 16, you turn things upside down. So the question is, how can we know what God is like, right? How, how can, that's a good question. Maybe you're new to the Bible. How can we know what God is like, and how can we know how he really wants us to live? Did he leave us just kind of aimlessly groping around in the dark? Did he give us license just to make things up for ourselves? No, 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 no. Because indeed God is loving, he gave us a book. Isaiah 29 and verse 18, two verses later says, in that day, speaking of a future day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. God has revealed himself in a book, the Holy Scriptures. 39 books in the Old Testament 27 in the New Testament for a total of 66. All, every jot and tittle inspired by God. 
All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Even these laundry lists at the end of epistles. In fact, as I was thinking about it, the end of epistles is one of the very helpful ways God puts shoe leather on the theology he wants us to walk out. In other words, these epistles help us understand how it is we are to walk out our faith. Remember that uh, story I told a couple weeks ago of looking for a deer for about eight hours one day? This was the boot I was wearing, and it blew apart. I was seeking. But listen, I'm going to put that boot right there because I want to spend two final sermons in 1 Corinthians 16 on this topic, shoe leather theology, how to walk out your faith. Y'all with me? Now, it doesn't tell us everything about walking out our faith, but some very practical things on how it is we walk out our faith to take our theology to the leather of walking it out. And I've got five G's for us this morning in part one. Has nothing to do with cell reception, but everything to do with your heart condition. We're going to talk about giving. We're going to talk about gathering. We're going to talk about gospeling. I'm well aware that is actually not a verb, but people say adulting, which should never be said. But people invent verbs all the time, so there you go. And then grumbling, something we're not to do. And finally, God. So let's dive in. First of all, shoe leather theology, truth number one, is we are to give financially to the work of God. As Pastor Charles read it in verses one through four, Paul, on the basis of the influence, uh, influence he has over churches that he planted, and it says he planted some churches in uh, Galatia, right? In various places, including at, the church at Corinth. On the basis of helping get those church start, started, he gives them a command to take up a series of offerings in order to benefit the church at Jerusalem who was going through some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty. Many people believe there was a famine born of a, of a drought that was hitting the area in those years. And then he says in verses 3 and 4, he gives some instruction how to deliver uh, those combined offerings to the church at Jerusalem. We ourselves have benefits, a beautiful thing. We have benefited from other churches taking offerings for us. It's in part how we mostly finish the inside of this building. And we have taken up offerings and given resources to other churches. But what I want to note is that this is a command. We look at these words on the first day, or I'm sorry, verse 1. As I directed the churches of Galatia concerning the offering, so you also are to do. Now, that doesn't really sound like a suggestion to me, does it to you? Seems like a bit of a command. And notice, Paul doesn't leverage gimmicks. He doesn't say, now listen, if you give, God is going to repay you 78 times, 78 fold, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't even guilt them. He just gives them some instruction on giving. He tells them to give. And so I want to develop this point a little bit with a few other scriptures when we talk about giving financially to the work of God. There's three truths we need to hold on to. Number one, this giving is to be weekly. Do you see this expression again? Verse two, on what day of the week? The first day of every week. Now, that's significant. We'll come back to that on the second point. But the idea, I think, clearly is that we are to give weekly. Now, some people give like once a month, 
But the idea is, if we're to give faithfully, we are to give based on what we make every week, or as the text says, as he may prosper you. That's a pretty clear concept, right? We give on the basis of what God has given us, and we, and we do it keeping in account everything that we earn even every week. Now, a second component is we're to give cheerfully. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, it says, God loves a stingy giver. God loves a cheerful giver. It's, it's how we ascribe value to our God. It's how we show his worth. Imagine a husband coming home to his wife with some flowers. He gives it to his wife, and she says, oh, they're beautiful. That was so kind to you. You didn't have to do that. Why did you do that? And he says, eh, kind of felt like I had to. So I think those flowers might go in the circular file, right? That hard attitude wouldn't be saying much about how he values his wife, right? You see the correlation? How and what we give to God shows the condition of our heart towards him and how we value him. We're not talking about flowers. We're talking about finances. So we're to give weekly. We're to give cheerfully. And we are to give sacrificially. Sometimes people say, well, how much should I give? That's a good question. And I believe the tithe is part of the old covenant. So there's no longer the law of tithe. But I do still think it's, it's wise to talk about the wisdom of the tithe. Maybe as a baseline, a starting point. But the key thing is sacrificially. And for most of us, let's be honest, giving 10% is a bit sacrificial. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul again talking about some of these offerings says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And basically he's leveraging the work of Christ to say something about what we do with what's in our wallet. And what's crazy is this. He says in that chapter that the church... um, at Macedonia, even, quote, in the midst of severe affliction and extreme poverty. Anybody here in extreme poverty? I don't think so. In the midst of that, they joyfully overflowed in generosity. So shoe leather theology, truth number one, is we are to give financially to the work of God. Weekly, cheerfully and sacrificially. And and let's be honest, I I don't like talking about money. We don't like talking about money. There's a lot of aberrant, crazy, hokey teaching about money in the church. But you know what? Jesus wasn't reluctant to talk about money. In fact, Jesus said, how we use our money actually shows where our treasure is. That is, who or what our God really is. So shoe theology, truth number one, what we do with our money shows how much we really value God, his mission, and his church. When should a believer start giving? When a believer becomes a believer. Number two, we are to gather weekly with the people of God. Verse two, Paul says, and I come back to this phrase, on the first day of every week. Now, why does Paul say on the first day? Why doesn't he say on the second day or the third day? Or the, why does he say the first day? What's the answer? 
Oh, I like where you're going with that. And we'll put that in the list too. <laughs> but why does he say on the first day? Easy to remember? We'll add that to the list. It's when they gathered. It was the day the early church worshiped. Now, I want to ask you this question. What in the world caused the church to begin to worship on the first day of the week, which we now call Sunday, when in point of fact, under the old covenant, the day of worship was what day? The seventh day or the Sabbath. And, and some of these people were saved out of pagan backgrounds. Others were Jewish people who trusted the Jewish Messiah. What caused them to move? That's a pretty radical shift. If, you, if you've been around Jewish people, especially devout Jewish people, they're very passionate about the Sabbath. Sandy Koufax, a pitcher of many years ago in MLB, he would not pitch on the Sabbath. You go to certain parts of Southfield, people won't drive on the Sabbath. That is the Jewish day of worship. So what caused them to switch it to the first day of the week? Was it just kind of, I don't know, let's just do something different? No, the answer is what Paul just gave, and we spent four sermons on it in 1 Corinthians 15. That was the day the builder of the church rose from the dead. And both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make the point that he rose on the, third, on the first day of the week after three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And that's the pattern of the early church. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week when they gathered to break bread, Paul preached until midnight. So don't get mad if I go a few minutes extra. <laughs> now, they, they actually didn't, the early church, and I've just do, been doing some reading on this, actually met in the evening because the first day of the week wasn't a weekend as we know it in the ancient world. It was just another work day. So they would typically meet in the evening, but still, past midnight is a long sermon. And in fact, Revelation 1.10, they began to call the first day of the week, the day of Christian worship, the Lord's Day. We're not Sabbatarians. We don't say this is now the Christian Sabbath. But I do think it might be helpful to start thinking of Sunday as the Lord's day. And not having less obstacles get in the way of getting to church than the other things that, are your, that, you, that, that you do in life. Here's a strong statement, but, but, but I, I think it's true. If a person won't regularly gather with the people of God at the end of the day, the great day, they may, may not actually be numbered among the people of God. It's true. You may have imbibed individualistic, Americanized, snake oil religion that warmly numbs a person on the way to hell in the same way hospice warmly numbs a person on the way to death. We know Hebrews 10 says we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And I think sometimes we're afraid of sounding legalistic. It's not legalistic just to talk about the good commands of God for the good of our soul. So shoe theology truth number two is this. What we do with weekly worship shows whether the risen Christ is really our king. What do you think about that? As you're thinking about it, we'll race on to shoe theology leather truth number three. We need to leverage evangelistic opportunities. In verses five through nine, we see Paul's heart for the church at Corinth. He wants to visit the church and not just for a quick minute. He really wants to spend some time with them. 
He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that I may help, you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So that's Paul's heart, but he wasn't able to do that because of what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, but I'm going to stay in Ephesus and tell Pentecost why for, verse 9, a wide door for effective work has opened for me. So why does Paul actually not make it to Corinth when he wants to? Because there, he, he wants to leverage a gospel opportunity. A wide door of effective uh, work has opened up for him. He wanted to seize the day and take advantage of the gospel opportunity and to walk through that door. Now, maybe you're here and you would say, I wish I had some open doors. And my answer to that would be, you will never know if a door is open until you push on it a little bit. I'm not talking about kicking down doors and being a jerk for Jesus, okay? But, you know, when my friend brings it up, wait, they're in darkness, you're in light. Your light needs to press into them a little bit. And remember what we said in 2 Corinthians 2, you have to be willing to stink to some so that you can smell good to others. Remember that when Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ. To those who are being saved, the fragrance of life. To those who are, being, uh, who are perishing, <laughs> the fragrance of death, like the smell of a bad shoe. But if you just want to smell good to everybody, you won't smell salvifically good for anyone. So you got to push on that door a little bit. Now, here's a couple opportunities. I mentioned it by way of announcements. A week from yesterday, this coming Saturday, what time? Two to four, where? Virginia Park Plaza on 12th Street or Rosa Parks. There, we're going to just, just try and push on some doors and see what God does. And then the following Wednesday for our midweek fellowship, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna just knock on some doors in the neighborhood, say hello to people, greet them. Pray for them and see if there's gospel opportunity. You will never know if a door is open until you at least put a little bit of pressure on it. That makes sense? Of course, with gospel opportunity will come gospel opposition. Paul notes that at the end of this paragraph where he says, and there are many adversaries. And you can read all about the adversaries that he encountered in Acts chapter 19, an absolutely crazy, crazy chapter. As you press into darkness, of course darkness is going to punch back. But when darkness punches back, don't punch back, but keep on pressing. Keep on pressing. Shoe leather theology, truth number three is this. Without, what you do with, with, this, with this call to proclaim the gospel shows whether you have an empty profession of faith or a true possession of Christ. Because if you have been saved from the judgment we deserve, then we are just going to want other people to enjoy that same deliverance. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, small m missionary because there is a call to foreign missions. But you get the sense of it, right? Well, let's move on. It is so quiet in here right now. It's just a weird Sunday. It's so quiet. It's because of that middle section. Um, Number four, esteem those leaders who serve you. And if you're quiet right now, this is where I kind of want to be quiet. 
I, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant, honestly, to say what I'm about to say because it seems a bit self-serving, frankly. And, and what's more, when God calls a person into ministry and they say yes to that call, you signed up for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank you once again, Mr. Eastwood. But this is where the text is actually going to take us, and so this is where we're going to go. And it's for your health and for our health collectively as a church. So here's, here's this thing about Timothy. Timothy might have helped, might have been on the church planning team at Corinth with Paul. We know that he was on the church planning team for other churches explicitly. What we do know for, for, for certainly, for, with certainty, is that back in chapter 4, it's referenced Timothy visited the church at Corinth at least one time before. And we know in this passage that Paul intends to send Timothy once again to Corinth. So verse 10, this is where we dive back in, Paul says when Timothy comes, again, he's been there before, maybe helped plant the church, he says, see that you put him at what? At ease among you. Now, that at first blush seems kind of innocent enough, doesn't it? You know, make sure he feels welcome. But in that phrase is the word um, aphabos. I don't think I'm saying it right. Aphabos. It's been many years since I did Greek. <laughs> but it sounds a little bit like phobia, right? It's the word from which we get the word fear. And most translations actually take the expression this way. See to it that he has nothing to fear, which kind of tips you off. Maybe there's something more going on, huh? And the NLT says, don't try to intimidate him. Well, what's hinted at in this verse, I think is explicitly stated in the next verse when he says, verse 11, so let no one despise him. Let no one look down on him. Let no one disrespect him. So what's going on there? Why is he bothering to say that? You should, you should question when you read a text what's going on. Why is he even saying, hey, listen, don't give him any reason to fear and don't despise him. Why is he bothering to say that? Now, it could simply be a matter of Paul warning them not to look down on Timothy because Timothy was a lot younger. It could be the flip side of 1 Timothy 4.12. Remember when Paul writes Timothy, he knows this is a tendency, and he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Which, by the way, that's just really good counsel for young leaders. Live in a way that, no, that you don't give them any handles to despise you. And for people who are under the leadership of young believers, young leaders, don't despise them. Now, that's probably something of what's going on there, but there's probably a lot more. Some think a lot more is going on, and I join with those some. We know, how, how, was, how were their factions at the church at Corinth, how were they receiving Paul? Let's just say, good or bad? Bad, right? There were some factions at the church at Corinth that were despising Paul. Why? Because of his efforts to shepherd them, which does include correction, as well as instruction. And some are saying that because Timothy is so closely aligned with, with, with Paul, that the despising they have for Paul might splash over to Timothy. I think there might be something there, right? So Paul says to the church, don't give him any reason to fear. 
Don't despise him. And then Paul tells us why he says that. Is it because that would be rude? Would that be rude? Yes, but that's not what he says. It would be rude. Would it be unhelpful? Yes, but that's not what he says. Would it be unhealthy? Indeed it would, but that's not what he says. He tells us. Right in the middle of those phrases, he says, for he is doing the Lord's work. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. In other words, to despise him would to be standing in the way of the work of the Lord. That's a strong indictment. And he ends by saying, 11b, help him on his way in peace, that he remain turned to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, the guy that I quoted by way of introduction who brought up Isaiah 29, verses 16 and 18, he said this. He says, Paul knows that they might not treat Timothy with respect, so he writes these words into that particular context. But the Spirit of God knows that it is a tendency among God's people through the ages to not esteem leadership. So this text is for us as well. And I have to tell you, this last season, that truth has been on steroids. No, that truth has been on anabolic steroids. Is there a difference? I don't know, Doc Haver. <laughs> but the stories are legion among pastors. So I'm going to go there just a little bit, okay? Because I think the text has taken us there. Here's one story. During the height of, of, of COVID, I had an 8 o'clock meeting with somebody who uh, was not pleased with me and pleased with us as leaders because we had a mask section. And in their uh, eyes, we were, we were feeding into a hoax and feeding into fear. Then I had a 9 o'clock. And the 9 o'clock person said, if I really love God, if we really loved our neighbor... We would require masks. In fact, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of laughing because it was funny, uh, but sad. You should preach behind a plexiglass uh, a container so you don't spit on people. And I, and, I, and I do spit a lot. You get a lot of Presbyterian baptisms here. I, I admit that. So I thought to myself, good night. I should just have a 10 p.m. meeting, or 10 a.m., maybe 10 p.m., and get these two parties together, and you guys can work it out. Pastors can tell you story after story of grumbling and griping. Very often with others, of course, it's rarely seen that way. Imagine a job in which you were incessantly and constantly second-guessed and judged, very often behind your back and very, very often without getting the benefit of the doubt. I remember a story, something happened when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, we had a private who was that, he was always grumbling, always griping. And one day, Staff Sergeant Williams, my platoon sergeant, said, Sir, why don't we just put him in charge for today? And it wasn't a real operation, it was just a training operation. He was a wise platoon sergeant. I said, yeah, let, let's do that. So we called the private into our platoon headquarters. He said, today you are in charge of all 40 men. I mean, everything, you know, making sure our defensive positions are right, ammo's up, food, water, logistics, battle plan, link-up points, patrolling, secure, all, all of that. Yeah, he was, he was kind of shining. 
And once he realized what was involved, and the reason we had to maybe be hard on one fire team because a guy fell asleep and somebody came through that if it was a real operation would have killed everybody, he, he started to get a bigger perspective. It wasn't just him, it was now 40 others. And it wasn't, it was by like midday he said, sir, I, I just want to be a private. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I just want to be a private too, frankly. All of this has put intense stress on pastors. Probably a greater time of stress in any recent seasons. Certainly unprecedented numbers. I, I received uh, Christianity today. I never got a prescription, but it came to me, so maybe that was the Lord. And uh, it was this week's cover issue, uh, this May and June cover issue, and, and this was exactly the topic of, uh, of, of the cover story, the main article. According to one study, 2021, 38% of pastors considered quitting. That's nearly four out of every 10 pastors. And the numbers certainly are unprecedented. It is said that in 2022, departures will increase by 20% of people out of ministry, getting out of ministry. Dane Orland, many of you read his book, Gentle and Lowly, he said, quote, there is a tidal wave of pastor resignations coming. And, and the, in addition to all this stuff that's driving it, this pain, there's also increased apathy, increased unfaithfulness among church members. Now, in that article, I just quoted, he tells the story of a guy named Jonathan Dotson. Have you heard of Jonathan Dotson? He's written a few books, some pretty good books. Um, he talks about the excruciating pain of people departing the faith, some deconstructions, quarantining, and all the isolation that brought, and all the problems that brought to the surface, three-page emails from congregants on why you're not doing enough about this injustice or that injustice, or people just plain leaving the church. And he said, during the COVID-19 era, and it is very quiet in here right now, um, and just this racial conversation, there has been unprecedented sheep shuffling as people go to a place where they see things my way. Now, he, 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 he uh, there's, there's a powerful quote here, and I'm going to try and deliver it composed because I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. One of the real hard things for pastors across the country is that our roles tend to be treated as relationally disposable. We value pastors when they give us what we want or think we need, but when we think we need someone else, suddenly they are inhuman. They are a religious commodity to be unsubscribed from. From a leadership position, from a pastoral position, that's a, that's a pretty strong quote. Now, of course I would say <laughs> there are so many congregants in, in, in nearly every church that have been incredibly encouraging, incredibly refreshing, incredibly life-giving, even when there was differences, there was godly ways of having discussions, which is a beautiful thing. We're supposed to do that as Christians. And all of that is not to say that pastors should somehow get this blind authoritarian obedience. You know this, we're not talking about that. Nor does it mean that pastors should not be held accountable for orthodoxy, what they teach, and orthopraxy, how they live. And that pastors don't make mistakes. We make a lot of them. 
But it's to highlight what Paul told the church at Corinth about how they were to receive Timothy. Put him at ease. Don't give him a reason to fear. Do not despise him. Rather, esteem him. Don't grumble. If you fight grumbling, read through the book of Numbers. Seven times the people of God grumbled. It did not go well. Miriam got a nice case of leprosy. And Korah and his sons were swallowed up by fire from heaven and then a massive earthquake. So let me just give some direction since we're on this point uh, of how, how you can approach this matter. Number one, support and love your pastors. And, 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 and I feel less awkward knowing that I'm speaking for three other men right now as well. And really, I'm thinking to them and other pastors that are struggling in other churches. Support and love your pastors. Listen to what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now be at peace among yourselves. Support and love your pastors, perhaps especially in times of crisis, when you have to make all kinds of judgment calls. Give grace, because pastors in any place are never going to get everything right. None of us get everything right, right? Right? And, when, and, and this is something that I hear when I go to pastor's meetings, whether EFCA or Acts 29, is how quickly people forget the body of work and the body of shepherding that's been exerted on somebody. Married them, maybe buried some loved ones, late night emergency phone calls because they got in a bad fight, all of that. And it just seems to go out the window. And so the, the, the encouragement, part of supporting loving your pastors is when difficulty and conflict comes, keep in mind the care that you received over the long haul. Number two, this may not be culturally popular, but the scripture says that you are to submit to your pastors. Hebrews 13, 17 puts it this way. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Number three, speak about concerns in ways that honor God, honor his word, and honor his people. And by the way, that's for pastors too because we violate that as well. And we need to own that and repent, that, repent of that when it happens. Don't gossip because even when that's not the intent, it is still the effect. Speak to leaders and speak about leaders in a way just like you would like to be spoken about. You will want people to assume the very best, I would guess, right? And don't say, they didn't hear me because they happened to, having heard you, still disagree with you. That's disingenuous. And understand, again, going back to the, the private who had to be the platoon uh, commander for a while, the breadth of leadership the breadth of responsibility, the myriads of, 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 of variables involved with even making one decision. Number four, sever the root of bitterness. Hebrews chapter, uh, is, what, is it? what chapter is that again? We have an elder in the house. So what chapter is that? Sever, it says, do not be defiled by the root of bitterness. How's that verse go? Tom, bail me out here because I'm sinking. 
<laughs> Somebody knows that verse. Um, yeah, Hebrews 12, 15, thank you, yeah. It, says, it talks about the root of bitterness, right? And if it's unchecked, it ends up defiling many. Marriage relationships are ruined because of unrepentant bitterness. Friendships are ruined because of unrepentant bitterness. Relationships in the family of God between people and people and, and leaders and leaders and leaders and people are sometimes soured because of unchecked bitterness. And so we got to deal with that. Because it might not seem like much right now. I live a couple blocks away over on Chicago Boulevard. Beautiful old, old trees. Boom, right next to the sidewalk. And they grow these big roots, but you don't see the roots because they're growing under the surface. But man, when they finally rear their head, they punch up big slabs of, of sidewalk pavement and it costs a lot of money and a lot of labor to get that thing right. It'll be a lot worse to deal with that bitterness when it pushes things up in your life than dealing with what's going underneath the surface of your heart right now. Amen. This is God's kind call to us. And finally, savor Christ. We, we all sin, right? And we all need that forgiveness. And so we treasure Jesus together. Remember, remember 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 Christ in me. Christ in me is patient and kind. Christ in me does not envy or boast. Christ in me is not arrogant or rude. Christ in me, love, does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Mm. So easy to be irritable, isn't it? It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather rejoices in the truth. Love, Christ in me, believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, and yes, even endures all things. Well, I got to put the brakes on this message, but I didn't want to end with that point, so I'm going to end with number five. Remember the church belongs to God. Let me read verse 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now he will come when he has opportunity. Now, here's the point. Way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there was a lot of factionalism going on, right? It was the cult of personality. I'm with Team Paul. I'm with Team Apollos. I'm with Team Cephas, and just down the line. Now, if Paul, if Paul had bought into that cult of personality, that factionalism, I don't think, he, I, he, if he bought into that, he would have said, hey, listen, man, I'm the one who planted the church. You should give me mad props. I should get my credit. I should get my due. I should get my respect. But that wasn't his mentality. That was not him. He didn't want to just shore up his support and make sure Team Paul was the strongest faction there. No. If that was his mentality, he would not have urged Apollos to visit, right? Now, Paul, Apollos was not able to visit, but here's the point. He wanted him to visit. Why? Because he knew the church was not about Paul. It was about God. Yeah. This church belongs to God. Restored church doesn't belong to me or, or Pastor Cleet any more than any others just because we're the founding and planting pastors. It doesn't. We, this is not a merit system based on seniority. Now, obviously, 
faithfulness over time grows a person's influence, and it should, it's a healthy dynamic, but again, that does not supplant the reality the church belongs to God. And I'll tell you what, as one of the guys who helped plant this church, that's actually quite freeing. Because the one who bought the church with his own blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, has said, I will build my church, Matthew 16. And because he did that, and because he purchased it, and because he's building it, I'm just going to stick to Scripture. When it's popular and palatable, and when it's not, wherever the Scripture lands is where, where we want to land. So this is just a little bit of shoe leather theology. Hopefully, it was not only nutritious, but maybe a little bit delicious. So five Gs. Five Gs. Give it, first one, giving. You want to walk out your faith, you need to give. Jesus had a lot to say about where what we do with our money shows where our heart really is. It's weekly, cheerfully, and sacrificially. Two, gathering. Would you make it a priority to gather? That was a strong statement I said under that point, right? If you have a hard time consistently gathering with the people of God, at the end of the day, you might, be, might not be among, numbered among the people of God. Gather with the people of God. Not to check the box because you want to feed on Christ and fellowship with his people. We're three, gospeling. Let's leverage these gospel opportunities. Let's see people brought out of darkness and the light and from the power of Satan to God himself as we proclaim the gospel in our community. And number four, let's not grumble. Again, that doesn't mean you co-sign and you're with everything, but you have appropriate conversations and you honor and esteem those who shepherd you. And that's not just pastors. That's people lead in various capacities here. Our prayer influence leader, Tina. Our evangelism influence leader, John. People who lead, lead a host of ministries here. It's true for, for everyone. And fifth of all, let's remember this church belongs to God. If it belongs to God, it's not up for, up for us to make up what we go with. We go with what he told us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The living Word stood on the written Word. And so this is what we go with. Amen? All right. Not sure how I feel about how this landed, but it's not about how I feel. It's about what God said. We'll get to part two next week. If the music team would uh, come, and we are going to pray once they get up here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. A word fitly spoken, brother. You are a blessing, Vincent. I'm not sure how you need to respond, but let's worship the king, right? Let's give him our praise. That's what he's due. And if you need prayer, there'll be a team to pray him back. If you need to come and maybe confess that I'm out of line on some of these G's, maybe one in particular. And receive the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's quick to forgive, right? So quick to forgive. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the people of God. Thank you for this church and and the privilege of serving this body going into a second decade. Having been through a lot of ups and downs, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one who bought the church with his own blood said, I will continue to build it. I pray that you would bless us with the gift of repentance where we need to repent, of faith where we need more faith, 
and that this summer season would be a summer of inward and outward gospel growth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.